Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. As you're probably well aware, April 1st, we'll see another increase in the federal carbon tax. It will increase to $50 a ton. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, that tax will keep growing each year until it reaches $170 a ton in 2030. Now, the government would, would assure you that, look, as the rate rises, so too does the rebate. And so the rebate offsets the costs. At least that's the idea. But is that how it works in practice? Well, to that end, there's an important new analysis from Canada's parliamentary budget officer looking at not just the impact of the taxes it is now, but looking at what the impact will be as it climbs to $170 a ton by 2030. And this analysis finds that there is indeed a net cost to households. Now, it's not the same for all households, not the same for all regions, but it does represent a net cost. Well, joining us to talk about this analysis, very pleased to welcome to the program here today, Canada's Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux, joins us on the line. Mr. Giroux, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. As we look ahead to 2030 and the rising uh, price of, of the government's price on carbon up to $170 per ton, as mentioned, this is the first look at what impact that is going to have on households. What are you factoring in when you assess the, the impact of a, a future policy like this? Well, first of all, we consider the cost of the cost of the carbon tax itself that is paid directly, and also the fact that it will be embedded in the price of many things that people buy. For example, all the goods and services that people purchase will have a component embedded because most of the inputs, things we buy, have a, a component that's fossil fuel transport, for example. So we look at that minus the rebate. So we arrive at what we used to, to call, uh, not what we used to call, but what we calculated before, which was the net cost of the carbon tax. When you consider only the carbon tax paid and the rebates that the government is providing to, uh, to households. So we did that first. And we also separately looked at the impact of a carbon tax on the Canadian economy. Because if you are taxing uh, a type of product such as fossil fuels, well, it makes these fuels more expensive and there's uh, a tendency to substitute these fuels for other types of energy that is less expensive. But this has a cost for those who can't substitute or even for those who choose to substitute, but they have to, to buy something that's a bit more expensive or retire pieces of equipment that is still working. If you think about uh, buying an electric car, for example, that has a cost. So right. we had looked at that for the economy as a whole, but what we had not done is combining that economic aspect, the impact of the carbon tax, into what it means for household finances. And that, that's what we did in the report that we released yesterday. We combined the impact of the carbon tax and the rebates so most households, if you just look in isolation at the carbon tax they pay minus the rebate, most households are usually better off. Uh, 
But when you also take into consideration the impact of the economic changes and the reduction in economic efficiency compared to a scenario where there wouldn't be any carbon tax, then the picture is, is different. And, and we find that there will be a, a negative impact for most households. Interesting. So when, when looking at a policy like this, there are then, I suppose, indirect costs of, of a policy like this. And I suppose there are also impacts on the economy. Are, are, you, are you factoring those in then? And to what extent is that relevant in, in this analysis and understanding the impact on, on households, both the indirect costs and, and potential impact to economic growth? Well, I think it's very relevant to look at the impacts on the economy, and that's that's what we do. We look at, for example, what happens if you increase the price of fossil fuels by the amount that will be uh, will be will be generated by a carbon tax that will increase, as you mentioned, to one hundred and seventy dollars per ton by. 2030, and and it's it's possible to measure that. Of course, it's uh, it's fraught with uncertainty, so it's not a, an exact science because it's very difficult to predict accurately what will happen in 2030. But we know that if the carbon price increases as it's scheduled to happen, it will have negative impacts on some sectors. For example, obviously the oil and gas sector will will have a disproportionate impact, uh, but the transportation sector will also have negative impacts because the transportation sector is mostly running on fossil fuel right now. So, and, and there, there are other sectors, for example, um, banking and trade will probably be uh, affected as well, but to a much, much lesser extent. So it's possible to determine the impacts across the economy, various sectors, even at the provincial level, and then to translate that into uh, the impacts on households through reductions in, for example, employment income or investment income. And in that mm -hmm. case, uh, both will be affected. How do you though factor in uh, the the counterfactuals of the you know for example not having a policy like this what what some would say is the cost of of doing nothing when it comes to carbon pricing or for example the potential benefits of of policies like this is is it possible to include that in an assessment like this? Well, the cost of uh, or the cost of benefits of new technologies, for example, that's very difficult to factor into that because. The new technologies that will have to be in place to fully replace uh, carbon fossil fuels, sorry, they're not all known yet, uh, although some of them we can have a, an idea that they will be coming into market, but we don't know exactly at what pace and the exact form they will take. So it's easy to think about uh, wind turbines or solar panels, but we'll have to go further than that. Some people are talking about nuclear fusion, for example. So between now and 2030, which is the time scope, time horizon of the report, I, it's very difficult to determine whether there will be sufficient advances in technology to fully uh, or to at least partially replace fossil fuels, which would alleviate some of the pressures. So that's why we have not taken into account the benefits of new technologies because it's a relatively short time horizon and it's unlikely that there will be major technological breakthroughs between now and 2030 to completely or at least significantly displace fossil fuels. The cost of doing nothing, not addressing climate change, uh, has costs 
uh, and we are in the process of trying to assess that, but it's a, it's a very challenging field of study. What I also find interesting in this analysis is that the impact on households does differ. It differs depending on household income. It differs depending on region. Why do we see those differences? Well, it, it varies across household income because uh, households have different consumption patterns depending on their income, uh, on average, that is. So lower-income households, they don't tend to have big houses or big apartments. They don't they don't tend to drive as much or drive bigger cars, whereas uh, households with uh, higher income tend to have more people uh, in the household, also have um, more consumption of fossil fuels, heating, and so on. So that's across the, the income scale for households. And across regions, the impacts are different because the power mix differs also across provinces. For example, Alberta and Saskatchewan tend to rely more on fossil fuels for electricity generation, for example, compared with Manitoba and Ontario. But also the economic structure tends to differ. The Alberta economy depends more than other provinces on the oil and gas sector, but there are other sectors that tend to be fossil fuel intensive in other provinces. And the differences in these economic structures affect the provincial impact for household. Because if more people are employed, for example, in the transportation sector, um, that'll be, uh, that'll have a bigger impact in terms of employment income. So that's, in broad terms, what explains the differences between household across income levels and regions of the country. Very interesting. Listen, I wanted to ask you as well, and a couple of other issues that you've done some some research on and some conversations that have been happening around some of these issues. Um, the, the question of defense spending and whether Canada can or should uh, meet its uh, NATO commitment of spending 2% of GDP on defense uh, you've looked at some of the numbers. If we were to get to 2% of GDP in defense spending, what, what kind of numbers might we be looking at? Well, we're looking at uh, updating these numbers because uh, there will be a, a defense, a defense, sorry, a budget tabled in the next couple of weeks. And um, it's not always easy to track exactly how much the government is spending to the dollar on specific areas. But uh, a broad rule of thumb suggests that if we were to meet the 2% target next year, it would mean uh, between 20 and $25 billion in new spending. It's probably closer to the 20 billion mark and that is additional spending it's not like we would need to spend 20 billion we would need to provide to spend an additional 20 billion dollars next year if we were to meet the two percent target but of course if we have economic growth and inflation when you have a denominator so that's the gdp that's growing at a healthy pace it means that defense spending has to also grow at a fast pace to maintain the 2% target. And and that's pretty expensive in the case of Canada because we start from a, a relatively low base of defense spending compared to the size of the economy. So roughly yeah. speaking, 20 to $25 billion more per year, every year. 
And also the, the question of pharmacare and a national dental care program, that came up this week. And, and you did some costing of the pharmacare that was in the NDP platform last year. You did some costing as well, or the PBO did some costing uh, on the uh, idea of a national dental plan, I think, in 2020. So those numbers may have changed as well. But, but roughly speaking, what kind of a price tag might we be looking at for those kinds of programs? So that's a, a question that was asked to us by an NDP MP who wanted to know what would cost the implementation of a national pharmacare program with very specific parameters, for example, using a list of prescribed drugs that would be um, uh, available for reimbursement with specific co-payments, et cetera. So we arrived in 2020 at an $11 billion cost per year ongoing and, and rising uh, with inflation and population growth. So you're easily talking now about probably $12 billion if that was to be implemented with the same parameters, um, either later this year or early next year. So it's uh, not an insignificant amount of money. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.